0: Good morning. Good morning. And a couple announcements before we get started this morning. You know, I talked a little about the American Association of Christian Counseling Conference last week, and I got so excited about what IVP did with our book, I forgot to tell you what we did at our booth. So (laughs) I was going to tell you that at our booth, uh, we, we gave stuff away. And we didn't actually put stuff out at tables for people. They had to come to our booth and get it. So people came to our booth, and we gave away at our booth over uh, 3,200 domestic violence study guides, over 3,500 of uh, the Great Controversy study guides, uh, the Cosmic Conflict series study guides, the new ones. If you haven't gotten one, they're out there. Uh, over 4,000, could it be this simple? Over 3,000 of the Healing the Mind DVD set and over uh, 1,300, almost 1,400 of the Modern Medicine DVD sets were given away to... Uh, yeah. So that's really exciting because the people who were there were pastors and counselors from all over the world. And then they took our materials and they're going to go back and use them. Many of them told us that that many of them had some of the stuff from prior prior meetings and they said, I'm already using this. My patients can I get some more intake. And so it's really, it's really exciting to see. All right, let's begin class of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will join us, that our minds will be enlightened, will come to know you and experience your healing in our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 3 in the quarterly, the sanctuary. And the title this week is Sacrifices. In the first paragraph, if you look at the first paragraph in Sabbath lesson, it says, "Central to the entire gospel is the concept of sacrifice." In the biblical language, the words for sacrifice often depict the idea of drawing near and of bringing something to God. The basic meaning of the Hebrew offering or sacrifice describes the act of approaching, the act of bringing something into the presence of God. The Greek equivalent means gift and describes the presentation of a sacrifice. First sentence there. I want to look at, and we'll go into this first paragraph, but what do you think of this idea that the, enti- the central, central to the entire gospel is the concept of Sacrifice. Central to the entire gospel. Well, I I decided it might be Russell. You want to say something?
1: It has two distinct differences in opposite You know, I think that central to God the gospel, God is continually
0: sacrificing of Himself for the well-being of His creation. Okay.
1: And the other the other uh, opposite uh, thought process is that God demanded a sacrifice and a payment be made to Him because He's holy. Justice must be met.
0: Other, other. Okay, I, I went online and I decided to look up the gospel, and I went to a variety of websites, Christian websites that promote the gospel, and they all have right at the very first paragraph basically a definition of the gospel. I got like four or five of them here. I'll just read to you, and I've got the web references, so if you want to go check the websites, you can in the notes. Here's here, here they go. Here's some of them. The gospel is the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that provides full and free deliverance from the power and penalty of sin according to the grace of God alone through faith in Christ alone. That's a pretty standard definition you hear a lot. Let's, let's keep going. The gospel is the, is the singularly most important communication of God to man. In Jesus, who is God the Son, we have the revelation of God's love and sacrifice that saves us from, the righteous judge, from God's righteous judgment upon sinners. You know, we're not, notice we're not saved from sin in this gospel. We're saved from God's judgment in this gospel. is that interesting? Here's another one. Uh, the gospel is called the good news because it addresses the most serious problem that you and I have as human beings. And that problem is simply this. God is holy and he is just and I am not. And at the end of my life, I'm going to stand before a just and holy God and I'll be judged. And I'll be judged either on the basis of my own righteousness or lack of it or the righteousness of another.
1: Is that from website?
0: <laughs> no, none of these are actually. And here's, here's another one. In a day of depressing headlines and uncertainty all around us, good news is very very welcome. What better news could there be than as the old hymn says, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. When Christians refer to the gospel, they are referring to the good news that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin so that we might become the children of God through faith alone in Christ. Those are the the, the four definitions that I just popped off the internet. Like the I think it was four out of the first six hits under the gospel on the website. You can see there's a common thread. So what do you hear? the definition of the gospel in these definitions that are really, a, I think, a fairly accurate reflection of the, of the mindset of Christianity across the globe, really. What do you think? think that's fairly reflective? So what do you think? Pardon?
1: You, you avoid the, judge, you know, the, the punishment of God if you... Is sort of what it says. Yeah, so
0: the gospel good news is that you don't, God doesn't have to punish you because Jesus has been punished for you. You don't have to worry about facing angry and wrathful and judging God because, guess what? Jesus has faced that for you. This is what they're saying the gospel is. Well, who is placed at the center of these gospels, first off? Notice that every one of these gospels puts man at the center about our salvation, about our avoiding punishment. About it's, it's, it's all about us. And how is God depicted in all of these supposed gospels? All the ones I just read. How is he depicted? The word love is used. And a couple of them. But how is he described? What action is he taking? Do you see in the Gospels that I just read a, a cooperative relationship going on between God and man? Or is there tension between God and man?
1: Tension. Tension.
0: Do you feel that God is on your side in these Gospels? Not Jesus. Now Jesus is clearly on our side in these Gospels. But did you feel that God was on our side in these Gospels? Hmm. So the Bible, though, I'm going to give you some Bible text regarding the gospel. Notice how the Bible refers to the gospel. I've got several here, and I'll give those. Romans 1.1, the gospel, good news of God. The gospel of God, the gospel, good news of God. Uh, Romans 1.9, the gospel, good news of God's Son. Um, Mark 1.1, the gospel, good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Acts 20.14, the gospel, good news of God's grace. Is the gospel about us? No. Is the gospel primarily about what happens to us? No. Or is it about God? <clears throat> Here's another one. Matthew 24:14 says, "The gospel of the kingdom." Mm-hmm. when the gospel of the kingdom we preach to the whole world as a witness of all nations. What kingdom? So in, in, when Jesus in Matthew 24 says the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, which kingdom is he referring to? Where is he focusing our attention? Is he focusing our attention on what's going to happen to us? Or is he focusing our attention on a kingdom that exists outside this world? Heavenly a kingdom. A heavenly kingdom. The good news is about something that's not normally happening on this planet anymore, the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, no think that through. the gospel of the kingdom. No one can this is a quote from John 3 3. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. The gospel of the kingdom, no one can see the kingdom unless he is born again. But we read earlier that the gospel is actually the process of being born again, the process of being saved. That's that's the gospel, that you're saved. Do you see any, any tension there in that idea? Or am I confusing you? If the gospel is of the kingdom, and you can't see the kingdom until you're born again, then is the gospel actually being born again?
1: Well, this is on you.
0: Hmm. Revelation 14 tells us that there's an eternal gospel, 14.6. An angel came with the eternal gospel. Eternal means what? What does it mean? Everlasting future? How about ever- eternal? Eternal past. Is it just eternity future that it's true and good news? Or is it eternity past that's good news?
1: Yep.
0: <clears throat> was there a gospel? A good news of God? The gospel of God? The gospel of Jesus? Was there good news before sin about God? Yes. Was there good news before the rebellion broke out in heaven?
2: Yes.
0: Did the gospel exist eternity past? What was the war in heaven over? If you were told a lie that your spouse was cheating, what would be the good news for you? What's good news if you if you if you believing a lie that your spouse is having an affair? What would be good news? <laughs> the truth that they're not, right? Yes. So, what is the ultimate good news here? Isn't it the truth about God that He's not what Satan has Satan made Him out to be? So, the gospel is not. Is, is the good news. Oh, here, here's, the, here's the, the real kicker for this. If you ever want a real text that really just nails it. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. It says, The gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel of the glory of Christ. The good news of the glory of Christ. And then it goes on in, in verse 6 to say, it's defined, the glory of Christ is defined as the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So the gospel is the knowledge of God. That's that's the gospel. That's the good news. God is like Jesus revealed him to be. That's what the Bible is saying. Did you notice the gospel definitions we read above had the good news being Jesus paying a penalty so we could be saved or forgiven or pardoned. But the Bible says this, Isaiah 55, 7-9. Let the wicked forsake his way, And the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. Did you hear what they just said here? We have these gospels that Jesus died to pay a penalty so we could be saved. We have here in Isaiah that when we forsake our ways and turn to the Lord, he freely pardons, freely. And he goes on to say, because my ways are not like yours. My ways are higher than yours. Your ways are lowly, they're earthly, they're carnal, they're they're, they're self-centered. You guys want payments, you guys want to be appeased, you guys want this I'm not like that. But yet we continue to teach God is like that. Thus, all, got, all gospel definitions we read earlier are definitions based on the false premise and misunderstanding of God's law. The false gospels arise when we fail to see God as creator, builder, designer, and instead believes he runs his universe like a dictator. Rules have been imposed, and those rules must be enforced, and justice required that a penalty be paid, or else there is no justice, just like we do on earth. But my ways are not your ways. I don't run heaven like you run earth, God says, So then how do we know, so now that we know that the gospel is about God, his character of love, his methods, his kingdom of love, then how do we understand this idea of sacrifice being connected to the gospel?
1: Can, can you look at the death of Jesus as a true demonstration of what real sacrifice is from God's point of view rather than man's point of view?
0: Absolutely. And, and anybody want to talk about that? Yeah, what do we see at the cross? What do we see happening at the cross? What did Jesus say prior to he went, went there? No one can take my life. I will lay it down or give it freely. See, unlike the two thieves, which were powerless on the hands of human power, they were nailed to the cross. They couldn't do anything to save themselves. Christ actually could have stopped it. It was voluntary. Now, and, and some people get confused by this. Christ did not commit suicide. When I talk about Christ being killed on the cross, some people say, but, but he, he surrendered, he voluntarily, they couldn't, they couldn't take Yes, he did. His voluntary surrender to that treatment was not the same thing as him committing suicide. No. Was it? No. No. He did not commit suicide. He did not execute or kill himself. But he didn't stop death from taking him either. Yes?
3: Consider it with the great controversy in mind. The conflict... You know, Lucifer was one of the angels and to describe what uh, sin was when it was just crying to the angels who had no reference point would have been very confusing so the greatest demonstration that Jesus was able to do was to show the heavenly kingdom what Lucifer would do if he was allowed and if you look from the Garden of Gethsemane to the cross that was the time period he was unleashed and he- yeah
0: well said, and we see that, exactly. And we see, and we see scriptures that refer to that, too, in Colossians, that all things in heaven and earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross, or 1 uh, uh, Corinthians four 9, we're a theater, a spectacle to angels, to men. So when you reach out and, and expand our view to look into the heavenly world, th- looking into these things, you're exactly right. The heavenly beings had questions. Lucifer was their friend. How could he do this? Pardon?
3: That's salt. I mean, for them, you know, there may have been the angels. You know, you can almost hear Jesus after the resurrection. Going up to the courts of heaven, said, "Did I do enough? Did, did I convince you? Did I? Did I? Uh, do you understand?" And they said, "We wish you would have stopped way before." And he said, "No, I wanted to make sure. I want you to fully understand the sacrifice and what it meant. That this is what Lucifer. This is what sin does. It takes Lucifer, turns him into somebody will willing to kill God."
0: So. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
3: Well, they also
1: too think think about how God was angry at the Jews years before for their misguided. Rituals that meant nothing because it wasn't out of love or sincerity, it was out of, out of routine. And that was the, the time of Jesus, similar sacrifice.
0: Now, this is well said as well. So, so when we think about what is learned at the cross, one lesson, one revelation of truth is God's true character of self-sacrificial love is revealed at the cross. We see it in Christ. You see me seeing the Father, that that He has power; He can stop them. But but think it through, guys. He won't use His power to stop injustice against Him. Okay, He won't stop it. He won't use His power to stop. It. He let he, he respects your freedom so much; He'll let you kill Him. Can you trust? Because one of the allegations is it's, is is that. Satan never alleged God is powerless. God has no power. He's weak. Never alleged that. He alleged he, he, alleged he couldn't be trusted with power. You have heard the saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? Well, he has all power and he's, corrupt, he's corrupted by it. The cross proves that's not true. There is no corruption. He has all power and he won't use it against you. He won't use it to protect himself even. You can trust him with the power. So we've, God's character revealed. Second thing revealed. Satan, as you said, is exposed. Satan is exposed as a murderer and a fraud. But there's a third thing, which was mentioned a moment ago, about the children of Israel. You see, if you look into history, why did Jesus come at this time in human history? Well, if you look at the children of Israel, since Sinai, God had given them some instructions, he gave them a script to observe, to keep. And if you look at the Old Testament, they're constantly falling into pagan or Baal worship, and, and this problem, and that problem. And, and after their captivity, they come out of captivity, and, and if you remember, they were committed now to keep the script. They're committed. We're going to keep the script. They're so committed that uh, Ezra and uh, Nehemiah come along and make them get rid of all their heathen wives so they won't be tempted to go back into paganism. So they, they divorce all their heathen wives and send them away, Remember? And from that point on, they kept the script, and and they only kept the script. They added to the script. It's like we're, we're we don't really want to. So they added all the rules, the mission, and all this stuff comes along, rule upon rule. They had all these things. You you could pin a a, a hanky to your, clo- to your to your to um, your vestments here, but you but you couldn't carry one in your hand on Sabbath. Okay, but you could have it if you need If you had a runny nose, you could pin it right here. Okay, but you couldn't carry it because we're, we're going to keep the law now. We're going to really keep it. And so now the angels watching down there, they're going okay. Here we finally have. A group of people following the script—they're finally doing everything they're supposed to do. And what do we learn from that? When you follow the rules without a change of heart, you kill the Creator. You're still His enemy. And that's what, on the outside—they look good. They were Pharisee of Pharisees. They look at think about the people in church. How many? How many would? would how many church boards would call Caiaphas to account? The Pharisees that put Christ on the cross. I mean, they were tithe-paying. They didn't wear the wrong clothes. They, they didn't put the wrong clothes on. They, they went to church on the right day. They were always had things done by sunset on Sabbath. They, they you know, ate the right foods. I mean, they, did, they, they kept the rules. So they're going to be church leaders. They and, they killed the, and they killed the Lord. Yeah. We learned something about that. Keeping the rules don't change the heart. Right. Keeping the rules don't change the heart. It's not a man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. God wants to transform the inner man. When the inner man is changed, the life does change, and we live a healthier life, there's no question. But you can keep the rules externally. So we learn a lot of the cross. A lot of truth was revealed at the cross. Yes, Linda.
2: And I like the, in John 13, where it says, that this part, we always focus on Jesus washing his disciples' feet, and we forget this sentence that happens before that. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got it from the meal, took off his outer garment, and wrapped a towel around his waist, and so on, you know, washed his disciples' feet. The sentence before he, the very thing he do, He did, after he realized all power had been given to him, was to be a servant to his disciples.
0: Well said, again, again, exactly right. All power, and how did he use his power? And Jesus uses his power to minister, to serve to help, to heal, to restore. Yes, yes. We also, um, it's clearly revealed at the cross that God's
2: forgiveness is not dependent on anything that we do. When he asks God to forgive them because they know not what they do.
0: Exactly, and we learn, so we learn that truth. We also learn why death comes. Why did death come upon Christ? I can tell you, you will read, and you come to our November 9, you're going to be shocked at what is published in Christian literature about Christ's death. You come November 9 you're going to shocked. But I can tell you that many, many, many Christian groups teach that Christ died because God killed him. <laughs> but if you read scripture, you find that God did not lay a hand upon his son at the cross. Not a hand. God didn't intervene to stop death taking him, just like Jesus didn't use his power to stop death from taking him. But that's a whole different deal than God using his power to kill him, whole different deal. So, would the sacrifice necessary be? We have this idea of sacrifice under the idea of God's character of love, the design of the builder. Then, that sacrifice is what was necessary in order to fix what Adam broke. Christ's sacrifice was necessary to fix what Adam broke. Now that's a very simple way to do it and say it. But what did Adam break? Oh, don't say the, don't say the, the the rules or the law. The what was broken by Adam?
2: Trust. Trust.
0: Trust relationship was broken for sure. What else? What was damaged? Let me put it that way instead of broke. What was damaged? Humanity, the image of God and man, the sanctuary where God dwells by his spirit became defiled, corrupted. Who got changed by Adam's sin? Amen. Then did God get changed in any way? Or he changes not. He's same yesterday day and tomorrow. Then if Adam gets changed such that because of sin, man is now alienated from God, our relationship with him is disrupted, God hasn't changed at all. Did God's law get changed? No. God's law didn't change. God's character didn't change. God's person didn't change. Mankind is now deviant from God's design. Then then, if Christ takes an action to reconcile and restore mankind, where will the effect have to be felt? To God? To God's law? Or to man? The transforming impact of what Christ has done is in man, not to God or God's law. But the false gospel that has infected Christianity is that Christ died to appease His Father, to assuage His wrath, to pay the penalty. It's not the true gospel. And Tim, yes. In
2: Isaiah, I think you were sort of referring to that in Isaiah 53, they predicted we would think that way. Because it says, you know, uh, surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God.
0: Smitten by Him, yeah, exactly. Exactly. We would misunderstand. We would misconstrue. So the first, first paragraph says, the basic meaning of sacrifice describes the act of approaching, the act of bringing something into the presence of God. That's what it says, sacrifice. It describes the act of approaching or bringing something into the presence of God. What does this suggest? What comes to mind in this type of description?
1: God is unapproachable.
0: God, God is unapproachable.
2: Unless,
0: Unless we bring in blood unless we bring him sacrifice. So the classic view is very much like that. Uh, we can't come to God unless we come with the blood of his son. We have to offer him his son's blood. So I know God's mad, he's angry. I know what we do would get him happy. When his son comes, we'll kill his son and offer him his son's blood, then he'll really like us.
1: Well, that, he's coming full circle with the covenant with Abraham.
0: We'll get to Mount Moriah. It's in the lesson for today. That's, that's a good point. It's a really good point. If one believes God's law is like human law, imposed without any inherent consequence, which requires the, the ruling authority to police breaches of the law and then, and then have judicial proceedings to find guilt and impose proper penalties, if that's how you see God running his government, then you understand sacrifice is to make that payment. But if you understand that God is the designer, the creator, the builder, who created his universe to operate on design protocols of love that that his whole universe is constructed upon, then deviations from that design protocol are incompatible with life. We're dead in trespass and sin, the scripture said. We're dying. We're terminal. Then you see Christ's sacrifice was actually to heal the breach in our characters, in our functioning, to put us back in harmony with God's design, to write the law back on the heart and mind of mankind, the design for life back on our minds, to regenerate us, Sacrifice is never rightly understood to appease, influence, alter, or impact or change God in any way. It is the process necessary to heal and transform sinners. In the next paragraph, it rightly says, similarly, the English word offering comes from the Latin of affair, uh, the presentation of a gift. The word sacrifice is a combination of the Latin sacer, holy, and fisir, make, which refers to the act of making something sacred making something sacred. Well, doesn't that mean that the sacrifice of Christ was necessary to make humanity sacred, to make us holy, to heal us, to transform us, to renew us, to regenerate us, to cleanse us, to rebuild us, to recreate us, to put us back into righteousness. So it says in Corinthians, the passage in Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that, this is the reason, so that, we might become the righteousness of God. Notice the reason. So that God's anger and wrath might be met. So that the legal penalty might be paid. It's not in the scripture, guys. It's all projected in because humanity exchanged the truth of who God is and his law of love for this imperial Roman concept.
1: Tim? Yeah. It may not be just an imperial Roman concept either because Jesus was referring to, uh, was talking to the Pharisees when he said, uh, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. You do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. Mm-hmm.
0: No, no, I agree with you. No, the same, same problem was there, but I'm talking for Christianity. Christianity got that. But you're right, that same problem was existent with Christ was dealing with in his day. Very well said. So why does then, with all this in mind then, why does God want sacrifice?
3: He wants his children well.
0: There you go. That's exactly right. Because he wants us healed. He wants us reconciled. He wants us restored. He wants us renewed. He wants us transformed. He wants us out of misery and pain. So he wanted the cure. He wanted the remedy. That's what he wanted. And the sacrifice was the means whereby God could achieve his goals of healing us.
2: Most people as parents would partially, at least to some degree, understand that. You would much rather hurt yourself than have your children be dying of something that you could save them from.
0: Was the death of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, needed before sin? No. So what does that tell you? The sacrifice is the means of healing, restoring, cleansing. So listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Put your hearing ears on because what I'm about to say could be misunderstood. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. The sacrifice of Jesus for the eradication of sin, salvation of humanity, and securing the universe is not the good news. It is the expression, the outworking, the effective action of the good news of who God is. In other words, the good news is about God and his character, which is fully expressed in the actions of Christ sacrificing himself for our salvation but the good news about God was true before he sacrificed himself.
3: Amen.
0: So you hear what I said? Mm-hmm. Because what's happened is Christianity has taken and wiped out this whole idea of God being the good news and we've just gone on to the expression and now the expression is about the sacrifice to pay the debt to make us and we've actually turned God into something awful that we can't trust. Mm-hmm. Yes?
3: Can you tell me elaborate on the verse in the Bible when it says that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of, of the world?
0: Sure, yeah, lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Soon as Adam sinned, why did he not die that day? It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, that, um, that God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. It's the NIV translation. Why did Adam not die eternally that day? God's mercy. What, is the, what does sin do to our relation with God? Severs it. How how much does sin sever our relation with God? Complete. If it's unremedied, if sin is unresolved, if sin is untreated, if sin is un you know dealt with, how how much does that sin separate our relation with God? And where does life originate? So, if sin is undealt with, what happens to those in sin? They're severed from their source of life, so they die. So. Why didn't Adam die that day?
2: Because when the earthly triumphs over judgment. Just says,
0: yeah. Now, you're, you're, using, you're using old language. Let's, let's, let's be very functional. Functionally, why did God, Adam not die that day? God was his relationship with God completely severed that day? Yes. Why not? Because God he sinned. <clears throat> God did still love Adam, but did God's love alone, God's forgiving heart alone, fix what was wrong with Adam? God loves him in Eden, right there. God loves him. Is Adam now sinless? No. Adam still has a defect. Adam still is in a terminal condition. If something isn't done, Adam will die eternally. So why didn't he die that day?
3: It's the same reason why Lucifer didn't die in heaven. It, Ellen White says it was by the mercies of God uh, that Lucifer was kept alive because the demonstration wouldn't have been complete. They would have been confused about what sin was. Well,
0: You've just thrown another wrench in our works here. Sorry. Okay? <laughs> Because actually there's different reasons. There are different reasons. It's a good reason, but it's not quite the same. Because now we can ask the question, well then why didn't Jesus die for Lucifer? The reason Adam didn't die goes to her question. Jesus was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And the New Testament describes Jesus as the second Adam. Understand, Jesus came in Adam's place and did the work that Adam was supposed to do. And, if, and, we, and then we accept Jesus, we become part of a new humanity. Instead of a descendant from Adam, corruptible in sin because we inherited this corruption, we become a reborn person who is now descendant of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, with a new heart and right spirit, transformed within. So the reason he didn't die is because a remedy was coming. And God's grace provided for, the, for Christ to come to solve the problem or fix what Adam broke. To fix what Adam broke. So, He was committed for that process. That's what it means. Mm -hmm. So, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, Sunday's lesson. It says, Adam and Eve lived in a perfect world in a sanctuary-like garden, and God granted them face-to-face communication with their creator. Their first sin opened uh, a nearly insurmountable breach in their relationship to God. However, God had already planned to counter such a breach uh, of trust. And even before... There came any judgment against them. He gave them the hope of the Savior. So what do you think about this wording, though? It just, maybe it's just me. Maybe my mind just reacts to things in crazy ways. I don't know. But this wording that he, God granted them face-to-face communication, maybe that's just me. It's like the president grants you an audience. The pope grants you an audience. I mean, it just, it just sounds weird to me to say it that way. Is it just me? No does it sound like, or almost kind of woven in there, like it really wasn't something he wanted? They had to petition for it, or, or they had to seek it, or, or, uh, it, it, is it different to say he granted them, or he designed a face relationship for them? Is there different to say he designed, he desired, he longed for, he wanted, he, he planned for, he created it to be such? Is that different than he granted?
1: It implies a condesc- condescension on God's part.
0: Yeah. yeah. Of course,
1: we go along with the whole idea that you know, God is unapproachable, and, you know.
2: We're just worms.
0: Yeah. I mean, it just kind of hit me in a way that doesn't really seem to represent Jesus. I don't see Jesus acting that way. He talked to the... This is very Pharisaical. Hey, what are you doing talking to me? I'm a woman here at the well. You're not supposed to talk to women. What are you talking to me for? Well, I'm going to grant you an audience with me. You should feel privileged. I mean, you just don't see Jesus doing this, do you? no. No, I just—it's just very Pharisaical, it seems to me, this idea. I think Jesus—and and what do we have described? How did He come to them every day? He walked, to them. He walked to them face to face. Yeah. So, second paragraph. Uh, this is uh, out of a book called "That I May Know Him." It says, "And Adam and Eve stood as criminals before their God, awaiting the sentence which transgression had had incurred." But before they hear of the thorn and the thistle, the sorrow and the anguish which should be their portion, and the dust to which they shall return, they listen to the words which must have inspired them with hope. Though they must suffer, they may look forward to ultimate victory. Do you find this inspiring? Do you like this language? <laughs> That's why I read it. We should talk about it. We shouldn't ignore it. Let's deal with this language. Um, does may get confused when you read things like this? hmm so, how do you handle it? We don't want to just dissect it up. We don't like that part, so we're going to ignore it. How do we deal with it? First, whose perspective is being described? The Adam and Eve stood as criminals before God. The devil. Is it likely Adam and Eve felt condemned? They stood as criminals. That's how they felt. As criminals before God. In fact, we get that from Adam. He ran and hid. Why was he running and hiding? But did you hear any condemnation from coming from God in the inspired record? No. In fact, you hear God calling out gently to him. And when Adam said, "I hid because I was naked and afraid," God says, "This is very telling." God says, "Who, "Who told you you were naked? You didn't hear." The implication is, Adam, you didn't hear me point out that to you. I'm not the one who said anything. In other words, I'm not condemning you, Adam. Condemnation wasn't coming from God. Where was condemnation coming from? Your own conscience. You are now defective. Your actions changed you and you are no longer at peace. You're no longer at harmony. You're unsettled. You're afraid. You're insecure. You're scared. And you're projecting that back onto me and you think I am your enemy and you think I'm coming to get you and you think you got to hide from me. I'm your savior. I created you. But you've got all this fear and insecurity because you're deviant now. You're self-centered. And this is what Christians are still doing. Humans are still doing. Projecting all this back on God and making God look like our sinful hearts. Condemnation was not coming from God. It was coming from their own condition. Their condition was deviant from God's design. If you have metastatic cancer spread through your body, your condition condemns you. The doctor who diagnoses you does not. So God goes to them and tells them the consequences of their actions but he also promises them a healing and a saving Savior that's coming. So was, God's, was God punishing when he told them the consequences of their actions, what was going to happen? Or was he informing them when he told them about the curse on the ground and all these things about, okay, this is what you've done. And here's what's going to happen. Do
2: you think the devil told Adam and Eve that they now are condemned
3: and criminals? Uh,
0: to the degree that he ha- could communicate with them? I bet he did. Here's another quote from the same author. This is out of Review and Herald, February 24, 1874. Um, Satan had peculiar interest to watch the developments. Satan had peculiar interest to watch the development of events immediately after the fall of Adam to learn how his work had affected the kingdom of God and what the Lord would do with Adam because of his disobedience. The Son of God, undertaking to become the redeemer of the race, placed Adam in a new relation to his creator. He was still fallen, but a door of hope was opened to him. The wrath of God still hung over Adam, but the execution of the sentence of death was delayed, and the indignation of God was restrained, because Christ had entered upon the work of becoming man's redeemer. Christ was to take the wrath of God, which in justice should fall upon man. He became a refuge for man and although man was indeed a criminal deserving the wrath of God yet he could by faith in Christ run into a refuge provided and be safe. In the midst of death there was life if man chose to accept it. The holy and infinite God who dwells in light unapproachable could no longer talk with man. No communication could now exist directly between man and his maker. Does that warm your heart? See, we, we need to look at these kind of descriptions that come from times past and be able to understand them in the, in the light of advancing truth and, and understand what they mean. So as you hear that, what, do, what does it mean? Let's break it down. Let's go through it, section by section. First, let's start with the, the last two sentences there. Did you notice the last two sentences? Um, let's see. Uh, the holy and infinite God who dwells in light unapproachable can no longer talk with man. No communication can now exist directly between man and his maker. Who talked to Adam in, in, in Eden and told him that, uh, that uh, Who told you you were naked? Uh, now there's going to be curse on the serpent. And who told him all this? Who was telling that? Who was telling them this? Who talked to Adam and told him they couldn't stay in Eden anymore? That the, the, child, the earth was going to give up thorns and thistles. Who told him this? Wait, I thought they couldn't have a communication. Phase. Who talked to Moses face to face as man speaks to a friend? Wait, I thought they couldn't do that. They couldn't do that. Do we take this stuff concretely? And do we understand there's something implied? Yes, clearly the relationship has been broken. Clearly we don't have the same. Something's different. But do we say this is an absolute extreme? uh, Or is God still communing with us? Yes.
2: And also the Lucifer is still able to communicate with God in heaven. I mean, it talks in the Bible about him going into the councils.
0: Book Book of Job. There he is, right face to face up there, walking around having conversation, God in here talking right back and forth to each other? Yeah.
3: But God was going to talk to, oh. wait a minute, <laughs> to Moses face to face. It was in the burning bush.
0: Uh, it, says, it says that Moses would go in to the sanctuary, repeatedly, and he would come out. the
2: form of God was actually there? that he saw God in his form? Like
0: it, God said to the prophets, I speak in riddles and dreams and dark speech, but Moses I speak face to face as man speaks with a friend. That's God speaking in Deuteronomy.
3: It's likely his glory was veiled. If sure. I don't think that he actually saw him in his <clears throat> glory.
0: Well, we do know in Exodus chapter 34, he saw God's form from behind.
1: Well, but There's the Jews believe that not only you're not supposed to look upon God because you can't, and the other thing is, is that you shouldn't even speak his name. But didn't Jesus come to the glory
2: of God? Known?
0: Sure. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm just pointing out, God was there in Eden talking to them directly. Was he not? Did God not come down and talk to Abraham directly on several occasions? Maybe in the form of an angel, but he still talked to him directly. Okay? He knew the form. So this, the, the, the thing wasn't that you couldn't see him. It was no communication could now exist directly between man and his maker. I thought they were talking directly in several places here. Didn't say you couldn't see him. That's not what that passage says. That verse says. the
1: Baptist of Jesus then got directly there.
0: God sw- spoke directly. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. God spoke from heaven directly. So, but it wasn't to, this, these types of statements aren't to be taken concretely and literally. This is the point I'm trying to make to you. They're to be t- they're, t- they're taking in a, in a general sense to, to teach a principle the relation between human, humans and God was, was was broken. we weren't in that close unity. we could just run in at our whim that they could have before into god 's presence couldn 't do that anymore only in very select and special circumstances was, was, were we able to tolerate a communication with God without falling down in fright and so the reason that that is broken is not because God is unwilling to communicate directly with us. God would love. In my belief, God would love to talk to us right now directly. But if he did, we would all be quaking in our boots, or if not, completely destroyed because we're too deviant from him to even tolerate his presence. So, let's break it down. The Son of God, undertaking to become the redeemer of the race, placed Adam in a new relationship to his creator. He was still fallen, but a door of hope was opened to him. What 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 is the relationship that Adam, after his fall has with God without Jesus. Without Jesus, what kind of relationship did Adam have with, with God after the fall? Adam's fallen, and without Jesus, what's that relationship like? He's afraid of him. Too. He's, He's alien. He's running from him. He's hiding from him. It's a, it's a distrusting relationship. I don't trust you, God. I believe lies about you. Broken-down relationship without Jesus. Uh, humanity is deviant and alienated, distrusting of God. Before sin, it was an open, free Free relationship after sin, separation, disconnection, dying in a terminal condition, separated from the source of life. What is the new relationship then that Adam has because of Jesus?
3: I don't call you servant; I call you friend. So it's a
0: direct. So Jesus becomes the connecting link between God and man, uniting God and man again, bringing man back into unity at one at. One meant atonement. So, our relationship is one of reconciliation, restoration, recreation. Through Jesus Christ, man is brought back into God's original design through Jesus Christ. But God. A new relationship. We can approach God now because of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. That's right. So, the wrath of God still hung over Adam, but the execution of the sentence of death was delayed. And the indignation of God was restrained because Christ had entered upon the work of becoming man's redeemer. Christ was to take the wrath of God, which, injustice should, should fall on man. What does this mean? Very, very difficult language if you haven't read the Bible widely. If you read the Bible just here and there, you're going to have trouble with words like this. If you read the Bible widely, it makes perfect sense. So, what does it mean? First thing we have to define it from the Bible, what is wrath from the Bible?
3: God letting us go.
0: There you go. God letting go. And I've got a whole bunch of texts in here. I'll just give a couple of them. Deuteronomy thirty-one, seventeen. When that happens, I will become angry with them. I will abandon them and they will be destroyed. It's like this all over the... I will fight against you with my might, my anger, my wrath, my fury. I will kill every living thing in the city. People, animals alike will die of terrible disease and will be, die by war and starvation and disease. It will be given over to the king of Babylon. See how he fights against us. By letting us go to reap the choices we've made. And on and on it goes. There's many more in here. The most, um, we don't go through them all. The most significant and I think clear is in Romans chapter 1, 18. God's anger, or to in your verse, aversion. Some say wrath. God's anger, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all sin and godlessness who suppress the truth by their wickedness. All the godless who suppress the truth. And he goes on to tell us why they do it. In verse 24, 26, and 28, God takes an action. Because the wrath of God is today re- being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men, Therefore, God does something. God gives, God gives them up, God gives them up, God gives them up. And it describes all the horrible things they end up in. When God lets go, they end up in all this wicked. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve uh, what uh, God has created instead of the creator who, who is to be praised. And they gave over to worldly passions and shameful lusts. And the, their minds became corrupt and darkened and futile and depraved. And all these things happen when the Lord lets go. And then, so what is God's wrath according to scripture?
3: To
0: let, them to let them go. Letting them go to reap. So, when we understand that, how do we understand then that God's wrath hung over Adam? God's wrath hung over Adam. What was his wrath then?
2: separation.
0: Adam's own choice changed Adam and put Adam outside God's design protocol for life. God respects the free choices of his creatures and without some actual change in mankind, mankind would reap, Adam would reap what he has chosen, complete and total separation from God. But Christ chose to take Adam's condition, i.e. take his place for the purpose to cure the condition, restoring man back to God's ideal. At the cross, God surrendered Christ and let Christ experience the free choices that Christ chose. No one can take my life. I will lay it down. I'm giving myself freely. God didn't force him to go through the cross. Humans couldn't force him to go through the cross. It was his free choice. God surrendered him to his choice, allowed him to reap what he had chosen. He became a refuge for man, and man was uh, and although man was indeed a criminal deserving of wrath, the wrath of God. Yet he could find uh, by faith in Christ could. provide refuge and safety. In the midst of death, there was life if he chose to accept it. So why could God's forgiveness alone, God's personal pardon in Eden, in Eden, God forgives Adam, why is that not enough to save Adam? So a... A parent tells their, their children, a five year old, you know, never drink pesticides in the garage. Okay, you leave those alone on a high shelf. One day they hear a crash, they go out and their child is, is seizing or whatever, coughing, vomiting because they've drank some pesticides. What's the problem? The father or the parent will be unforgiving? I forgive you. That's all that's, all that's needed. That's not the problem, is it? No, that's mankind's condition. We're out of harmony. We're going to die because we, we're deviant from the way life is designed to operate. And so God isn't mad, but he has to fix what's broken. And prior to Christ's coming, after Adam's sin, there was perfect divine nature. God was perfect. His nature was perfect. There were angels in heaven with perfect natures of their order. Angelic natures. There were still angels that were perfect. If we believe that there are intelligent beings in other worlds, then those beings in other worlds had perfect natures of their order. But There was no perfect human nature. None. Now, God is free as the divine creator. He can create new species. He could. He could create a new human being out of the dust if he wanted, but that being would not be a descendant of Adam. That'd be a new creation, a new species, if you will. It wouldn't be human. It might be something else, look like human, but it wouldn't be Adam. In order to cure and heal the human race, Christ had to become human. And in his humanity, restore God's perfection into humanity through his own human brain choices, which he did. It's profound, it's profound. We're going to get more to that in our presentation on the ninth. But this is uh, this was described by the early church fathers for the first 200 years after Christ. This is what they taught that Christ came to achieve. It was only after Constantine converted that all this changed.
1: Wouldn't that be why? Jesus had to reject Satan in return. Exactly. Because Adam did
0: Exactly. Exactly right. Yes. So Christ took our terminal condition at the cross. The Father let Christ go to reap what he had chosen, which was to save us. So when reading difficult dark speech language, like the other ones, we also need to then... Not read them in isolation, but read more widely in the the author that wrote it as well. And this is from something called First Selective Messages 235. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for a sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. You know, this is neurobiologically true. When you engage in behaviors over and again, it becomes easier and easier to do those behaviors. Your brain actually changes. Whether those are healthy behaviors, if you start a healthy habit and you start doing that over again, it's easier to do that again. Whether it's exercise, you haven't exercised in years and you start exercising. Boy, is it hard at first, isn't it? But if you keep it up and slowly build up for it, over the course of time, doesn't it get easier? Sure it does. Same thing is true for unhealthy habits and unhealthy thought processes. It's absolutely true. So we bring it all together, what emerges, that Adam and Eve deviated from God's design and stood outside his law. They stood outside. They were deviant from the design. This this condition was terminal. They, They were therefore, if you want to use legal language, you could say they were criminals because they're outside the law. They're deviant from the design. But because we are so inculcated with a certain law construct, imposed law, when we hear those words, we think very arbitrary and punitive things of God. God did not want humanity to die in their terminal condition. Thus, Christ committed himself to become human for the purpose of reconciling mankind back to God. To fix the deviation and restore humanity to God's design. Monday's lesson. Second paragraph. It says, God established the sacrificial system so that believers could enter into a close relationship with him. This is why offerings could be brought in different kinds of situations for thanksgiving, for expression, for joy, and so forth. Okay. In this paragraph, is it talking about sacrifices before or after Sinai? It's after because you get all these different types of sacrifices that they're describing that were all the, the thank offering, and this offering, and that offering, and so forth. Do you agree with their conclusion that God set up the sacrificial system so believers could enter into a close relationship with him? No. I don't either. Not at all. There you go. So so then does this mean that you can have a close relationship with God without the sacrificial system? Yes. Absolutely. Then, could um, what was the purpose of the sacrifices of animals if it wasn't to enter in to close relationship with God? What was its purpose? Was that system designed to... Be, listen carefully, was it designed to be the way into relationship with God or to teach the way into close relation with God?
2: Teach. teach.
0: There's a difference from being and teaching, isn't there? Can't get into a close relation with God by killing animals. But that system could teach us something about the way into a close relation with God. But too often through human history, God gives us a teaching tool and then the people take the teaching tool and it becomes the reality which they resonate around. So imagine using a mirror as an analogy of looking into the law to find defects of character. It's a teaching tool. It's a little analogy, teaching tool. But people mistake the teaching tool for the reality, and they believe mirrors are necessary to see our defects of sin. And so people build churches and houses of worship and sanctuaries, and, and everything is lined with mirrors, and they create mirrors in the shape of crosses and, and ensure people carry them wherever they go, and they institute mirror services where everybody pulls out their mirror and looks in the mirror to reflect in that. And, and, the mirrors, and they have mirror moments before major tests in, in sporting events, and mirrors become holy relics passed from generation to generation, and, and on we go. You see the problem? It's a metaphor. Do you realize how much religion is stuck on people concretely holding to some teaching tool as if the teaching tool had some benefit for salvation? This is what Paul reams them for in Hebrews. There is no cleansing from sin from the blood of animals and goats. This is in Micah. What should I come before the Lord? Should I come with a fat of fatted ram? Should I come with a thousand rivers of oil? And, uh, and, this and that? No, he's showing you what's good. Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1. I hate your feast days, your sacrifices, and all this stuff. I hate it; it makes me sick. Come, let us reason together. with your sins are like scarlet? Will be white like snow? Reasoning, the truth, transformation, inner man stuff.
2: So, would you say the Ten Commandments themselves are a teaching tool?
0: Yes, they are. The Ten Commandments were added; that written code was added for man's need. Angels did not need a law of genetic inheritance of sins passed down three and four generations. Angels did not need a law not to commit adultery with their from their marriage partner or to honor their mothers and fathers. This was written for human need. But it's an expression of the eternal design protocol of love that was not created, but is an expression of God's character. So the teaching tools and what's happened now and and, and is this sacrificial system that we are studying, the sanctuary. It is a teaching tool. It's a little theater. But so many people get stuck concretely on the tools that they never see the bigger lesson. They never see the bigger lesson and what it means. And so, when you think of the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, are you thinking of a little woolly animal? Are you? Mm
2: -hmm. You are? I shouldn't, but I do.
0: Yeah. Do you translate that in your mind, most of you, immediately to Jesus? You think Jesus. Well, that whole system, when when we study the sanctuary and you study it this this quarter and you study it in your church and you read church documents that talk about a heavenly sanctuary, translate it into reality. Stop holding to symbols. Stop holding to symbols. In our church, we have many of these types of things. I was going to ask, because I'm going to jump off the symbols like communion and baptism and some of these other stuff and mention Mount Moriah because it was mentioned earlier and I wanted to get to it. Tuesday's lesson, Abraham, Isaac, and Mount Moriah. What did God instruct? Why did God instruct Abraham to do this? The second paragraph. Okay, that's uh, Tuesday's lesson. Second paragraph. It was to impress Abraham's mind with the reality of the gospel, as well as to test his faith. It, 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 Abraham longed to know God more intimately, and this was a exercise for Abraham's spiritual insight to let Abraham know what God was going through for our salvation. But this is one of those examples of a teaching tool taken concretely to distort and misrepresent. And many people take this example and and use it to say, Isaac represents Jesus, Abraham represents God, God killed Jesus at the cross. Mm -hmm. How many have heard this? Well, if they're actually going to misapply it, because that's not what it's designed to do. It's not designed to teach that. It's designed to give Abraham insight into the love of God and giving up his son and how much God loves and how much he's sacrificing to surrender his son for our salvation. That's what it was designed to do. And that's why when Jesus said, Abraham longed to see my day, and he did. He saw it here at Mount Moriah. That's what it was purpose. But when you misapply it, you get these distortions. But even if those are going to misapply it and abuse it and make it appear to be what happened at the cross, then at least be honest with the text and apply it accurately. Abraham did not kill Isaac. Isaac. That's what actually happened. So don't say God killed Jesus because he didn't.
1: That's the danger of the penal substitution of model.
0: That's, what, that's, that's exactly right. So, all righty, um, we're gonna we're going to close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such great lengths to reveal the truth about who you are. Lord, we have so much yet to learn. Enlighten our minds. Help us see the truth as Jesus revealed. Come into our, our spirit temples with your presence to cleanse, regenerate, renew, to take what Christ has achieved, reproduce it in us, and make us more effective in sharing this message, Lord, because we know in the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of love is preached to the whole world, that they can see who you, who you really are. Then the end will come, and we can come home to be with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.
2: Amen. Amen.